This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. You're very welcome uh, to this event this morning. We're here to talk about discrimination in the labour market. We're going to talk about it because discrimination happens. Uh, we're going to talk about it because it's very hard to get justice when it has happened and because it doesn't get talked about very much in research and policymaking circles, including by organisations like ours. And one of the reasons for that is because it's not susceptible to lots of the kind of data analysis that you would normally apply to questions about the labour market, counting how many people are in certain kinds of jobs, what's happening to unemployment. So we're going to try to put some of that right uh, today. And we're doing that as part of a two-year project that we're doing here at the Resolution Foundation on Labour Market Enforcement. How do you turn rights into meaningful rights because people have a chance of being able to enforce them either individually or collectively? And that project is supported by Unbound Philanthropy, for whom we are very grateful uh, indeed. So there's a report out today focusing on that as part of this project. And you're going to first of all hear from the author of that report, Hannah Slaughter, who's a senior economist here at the Foundation and has been leading lots of the work on enforcement that we've been doing in recent uh, years. And then we've got a great panel to help us dig through the different details of that about what's going on in the world and then what happens when people do try to get justice from it. So first of all, you're going to hear from Lutfa Ali, who's a senior policy advisor at CIPD since October 21, but I spent a lot of time over the years working on these kind of issues in a number of roles. And then you're going to hear from Charlotte Bryce, employment solicitor at Hammersmith and Fulham Law Centre, who's attempting to help people get justice when um, they have experienced discrimination and other kinds of um, claims. And again, we probably don't hear enough from that sector in the policy land. So thank you very much. And particularly, Charlotte, thank you for coming at short notice, given that we've had a slight change to the panel this morning. So we're very grateful for that indeed. Now, as always, you can ask your questions on Slido. So log in and it is hashtag unfair treatment and put your questions on there. And then we're going to come to those once we've heard from our panellists. So Hannah, over to you. Cool. Thank you. Um, and yeah, just to reiterate Torsten's uh, thanks to Unbound Philanthropy who have supported this work. Um, so as Torsten said, this is part of our wider programme of labour market enforcement that we've got going on. And today we're looking at discrimination in the workplace. And as many of you will know, discrimination has been very clearly kind of outlawed through various uh, pieces of legislation since the 1960s. But it's, it's quite clear that discrimination still does exist uh, in the workforce today. But again, as Torsten said, it's very difficult to actually put numbers on this. Um, so to kind of add to the evidence base, we uh, ran our own survey um, in partnership with YouGov um, that asked people about their experiences of discrimination in the workplace. So first of all, here is what we found. Um, so this chart is showing you the share of the working age population. So. Uh, 18 to 65 year olds who say that they uh, have experienced different forms of workplace discrimination over the past year. And it's worth pointing out here that this is everyone of working age, not just those in work, because you can have experienced these forms of discrimination if you have been out of work but applying for a job and if you've lost your job in the last year. Uh, so it's quite a broad, um, a broad set of people. But obviously, the once you kind of, if you were to filter down on those kind of many different groups you'd actually get higher numbers here but just focusing on the working population as a whole 
we find that um, the most commonly reported form of uh, discrimination is being turned down for a job. Uh, so one in eight people in our survey reported experiencing that and around one in 12 reported um, being turned down for a promotion and uh, similar share denied training opportunities due to discrimination. And overall, including those forms of discrimination as well as uh, being dismissed and made redundant or other forms of discrimination, uh, around one in five people in our survey reported experiencing discrimination in the workplace um, over the past year. So that's obviously, you know, that's a really large share of people. This is obviously a big problem. But uh, in this chart, so we look at um, which, um, which protected characteristics are the most common grounds for discrimination, according to people's uh, reports. So here you can see that in absolute terms, it's age and it's sex discrimination that are the most commonly reported. Um, but um, when you look at the next couple of um, characteristics further down, there are still really high numbers of people reporting uh, discrimination on the grounds of either their ethnicity or their disability. And given that people from ethnic minority backgrounds and those with disabilities make up far smaller shares of the population than, for example, women, this is clearly kind of a, a, you know, an important thing to be taking into account. Um, so looking at kind of relative prevalence within the groups that are most likely to be affected, um, we find uh, that among women specifically, um, around 7% have experienced sex discrimination uh, or report experiencing sex discrimination over the past year. Uh, and so that is smaller than lots of other kind of of the bars in our charts, but given that half the population is female, that aggregates up to a, a big number. When it comes to age discrimination, um, we see a, a U-shaped pattern. So the youngest group of workers here are the most likely to report um, experiencing discrimination, but also um, among those aged 55 to 65, uh, just over one in 10 report age uh, discrimination um, at work. And it's worth saying uh, here as well that 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 rate of discrimination among older age groups may be uh, understating the problem slightly first because we only go up to age 65 here and it may be that uh, older workers than that uh, are more likely to face discrimination that seems to be the case based on other research but also the uh, research from the Centre for Aging Better has found that older workers are less likely to associate with the term discrimination even when they face disadvantage in the workplace um, but you can see that the, that blue bar uh, towards the bottom is the the kind of the one that stands out as uh, being the biggest issue here so that's among uh, workers from an ethnic minority background just over one in five say that they have experienced discrimination in the workplace based on their ethnicity alone and in the reports um, we kind of show further breakdowns that also show that workers from ethnic minority backgrounds are more likely to face other forms of discrimination um, as well uh, compared to white workers um, and then finally around one in seven people with a disability related to either physical health or mental health um, report experiencing discrimination and again it's, it's important to remember that this is looking at the whole working age population so given that we know that people with disabilities are less likely to be in work in the first place that you know that means that a greater share of, of workers with disabilities or what people who've been in contact with the labour market with a disability um, are facing uh, these issues so clearly a big problem um, discrimination is uh, clearly rife in lots of the workforce um, 
but who is doing something about it. Um, so firstly, thinking about state enforcement, that's done through the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which has responsibility not just for workplace discrimination, but for other forms of discrimination and wider human rights as well. Um, they tend to take more of a compliance-based approach, so encouraging businesses to do the right thing. Um, and in part, that's um, you know that that's a sensible approach because you know stopping discrimination from happening in the first place is an important thing to do. But it does mean that they don't do that much of kind of active enforcement. Um, and so one of the reasons for that is that they lack a lot of powers, so they are unable to do kind of lots of proactive inspections and unable to levy fines directly. But the other big um, challenge that they face is that their budget has been cut quite substantially. So thinking about the change that you can see here, this is their budget in real terms since they were created in 2008-9. It's fallen by four-fifths, so really kind of striking um kind of diminishing in their in their resources and um on the far left here you can see the budgets in real terms for the three bodies that the ehrc was created from um, and so for example the ehrc's budget today is actually smaller in real terms than the commission for racial equality um the former body um had kind of for race, looking at race alone, um, and similarly for Disability Rights Commission. So despite having far wider responsibilities, the EHRC has had its budget cut quite substantially. So if state enforcement isn't really an option for lots of workers, what is? Um, so lots of more commonly workers will take their case to an employment tribunal. Um, but this chart is showing how rarely workers do so. So this is kind of scaling the um, the reported uh, number, the numbers of people in our survey reporting that they've experienced discrimination in the past year, um, looking at that in, in proportion to the number of cases that actually gets take, get taken to um, a tribunal. And you can see from those solid bars that it's far less in, in every case that we can look at than 1% of, of kind of people experiencing discrimination actually take it to a tribunal. A slightly higher share will go through ACAS's um, early conciliation, um, and that's a stage that people have to go through before they take a case, or at least consider before they go to an employment tribunal, but still less than 1% of people experiencing discrimination in all the um, breakdowns that we have here. So it's kind of not, um, you know, it's not a very widely used um, system and it also tends to favour higher paid workers. So this is showing you the number of workers um, per, per 10,000 uh, workers who take their case to an employment tribunal and the highest earners in this breakdown are uh, almost twice as likely to take a case to an employment tribunal as those uh, on the lowest in the lowest earnings bracket. Is this because higher paid workers are more likely to face discrimination in the first place? Uh, no. So this, the other panel of this chart is showing you kind of it's basically the opposite uh, income gradient, um, looking at people expressing anxiety about discrimination at work, which is a kind of rough proxy that we use here um, for uh, for discrimination. And it's the lowest paid workers who are twice as likely here to, uh, to be anxious about discrimination um, at work. So for lots of workers, the system there isn't working either. So how do we improve things? Um, and I think it's worth saying in lots of our enforcement work, uh, looking at other forms of labour market rights, we've argued that the state should take a more interventionist approach and that it shouldn't be for workers themselves to kind of police their rights. And I think while that remains true in general, there is we do see that there being more of a role for individual enforcement through the employment tribunals um, for discrimination than other rights, because it's more, it, it's mu cases tend to be much more complex, it's more 
it's much easier, for example, to prove or disprove someone's been paid the minimum wage or not um, than it is to kind of deal with the nuances of a discrimination case. Uh, so there is more of a role here for the employment tribunal system. That said, there are clearly improvements that could be made. So firstly, we recommend um, that the government should provide more financial help to those workers who are who want to take a case. There are um, there is help available, there is legal aid, but the, um, the constraints are quite tight there. Um, and there are kind of other avenues that workers can go down, for example, law centres, but that we've argued that there should be more support from the states. Um, and there is also, uh, also funding available through the EHRC uh, for specific cases, but again, fairly limited. Um, second, we recommend giving workers longer to decide whether to take a case to court. So at the moment, it's uh, workers have to take a case within three months of discrimination taking place, which can be quite a tightly constrained amount of time to kind of consider your options can be extended in limited circumstances but um, we recommended extending the period to six months which the government has indicated it's considering doing but we think they should go ahead with that um, and the government should also prioritise clearing the backlog um, of employment tribunal cases that's more than doubled since 2018 partly linked to the pandemic but actually the rise was the rise started before then as well um, but all that said, we still see an important role for state enforcement um, to protect workers, um, particularly those on the lowest uh, incomes and those who are less likely to want to take a case, even if there's some financial uh, support available. You know, employment tribunal cases in general, and particularly in the case of discrimination, can be very, you know, very stressful, very emotionally taxing, and you know, lots of workers won't want to go down that route for very good reason. So. To improve state enforcement, we think that the government should legislate to give the EHRC stronger powers. So being able to do more proactive um, uh, enforcement, being able to levy fines directly instead of having to kind of take a business to court in order to get a financial penalty levied. Um, in order to actually be able to, to do that, uh, the EHRC will need a greater level of um, resourcing and that will help them to kind of do more investigations as well and kind of make sure that they are um, protecting um, those workers who are facing discrimination. Uh, and finally, um, we think there should be better join up between enforcement bodies. So uh, at some point, hopefully, uh, it, it is planned that there will be a single enforcement body created, uh, bringing together some of the other enforcement bodies, so minimum wage, um, agency, workers' rights, and, and others. Um, discrimination currently is not set to be part of that landscape, that single enforcement body, but we think that there's an important role for kind of join up between between the EHRC and the single enforcement body, but also with the other enforcement bodies in the meantime. So, um, for example, we think that the EHRC should be able to obviously, you know, there's there are important data protection concerns, but kind of we think that there should be more of an ability for the enforcement bodies to share information with each other where one body uncovers um, violations outside of its own remit. So if the EHRC uncovers minimum wage underpayment, for example, they should be able to report that to HMRC uh, in an anonymised way and vice versa. Um, so I think that's it from me. Um, and I'll pass over to our panellists to give their reflections. Great. Thank you very much, Hannah. <laughs> Lots of food for um, thought in there. The, the, the slide that most stuck out for me when I was reading a report, obviously, uh, a few weeks back, is the, the stark contrast between low earners being most likely to face discrimination, actually of all kinds, 
Um, and highest earners being the ones that actually make it into the employment tribunal system, which definitely tells you you've got a bit of a problem uh, coming. There's loads of good questions coming in on Slido, so just to remind you, it's hashtag unfair treatment for those of you uh, just logging in. But as I say, lots of good questions already coming in. Right, what's going on? Gosh. Tosten Festival, thank you so much, Anna. Thanks so much for, for the research. Thank you to the Resolution Foundation for the opportunity to be able to share some thoughts around your research findings. First of all, you know, the CIPD welcomes this report, welcomes the findings, and on the whole, broadly sort of supports and is looking forward to working in collaboration with you to try and sort of take forward some of these issues to influence decision makers in this area. That said, you know, it is disappointing to see the continued persistence and prevalence of discrimination in the workplace after decades, as you've pointed out rightly, Hannah, uh, almost 50, 55 years of uh, anti-discrimination legislation. It is very, very disappointing to see uh, the, the, the continued, in some instances, an increase. Uh, what I find particularly poignant about the report was your focus on specific areas and the slicing of, uh, of, of particular areas of discrimination, where you, your research has highlighted, for example, in the black and ethnic minority workforce, there are a higher number of men indicating that they're experiencing discrimination. That's interesting, uh, a, a distinction to bring about. Uh, and what would be really useful to sort of look at and explore further is as to what the reasons are uh, that, that's, that, that's causing that. Because a lot of the information that we've come across is that it's fairly uh, even. And in some instances, it's, it's women that are experiencing more discrimination in the workplace. Also, a salient issue uh, that you've highlighted in this that uh, I find particularly uh, uh, interesting to take forward uh, is the, is the uh, issue around... Um, 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 uh, uh, the the, the um, uh, EHRC uh, and its responsibilities uh, and and uh, we, we've we've sort of seen uh, iterations of that organisation in this uh, in the uh, 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 um, race commission the sex discrimination commission and the disability commission and going back, going back about twenty five years it feels like those organisations in its historical guises had more power than it has now. I don't know about, I mean, those of us that track, track that, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, the enforcement sort of world, that's what seems to have come across. So I think it's really important that we focus on, look at what kinds of interventions and what kinds of changes that, that are necessary for that organisation around that enforcement space. That said, the space that the CIPD works in, is which, in which is one of soft power and influencing, and I think you do as well, and we'd be looking at both the sort of carrot and stick method here, to try and influence organisations, government institutions to try and take an approach where we're seeking to change hearts and minds because enforcement alone and strengthening enforcement alone is not going to be the solution to this. And it'll be useful to sort of explore, Torsten, as to what some of those interventions that we're working on that we can work collaboratively on going forward. Another sort of contextual piece in all of this is that I never thought in my lifetime that I'd ever see an Asian, Indian, Hindu practicing Prime Minister and also underpinning that is that we've seen over the last two years one of the most diverse cabinets at the most senior levels the most greatest diversity in history now the question is you know is, is this distracting us from the true reality of what's going on and what your research shows very very clearly is that regardless of diversity at senior levels the reality of equality of outcomes is quite different and discrimination is still persistent. Now there are huge issues and question marks about 
whether the idea of diversity within organisations delivers equality of outcomes. And it's really important that we seek to explore and unpack that, given that there's been such a great you know, push towards diversifying organisations. If you still have the same people aligning their views and their actions and perspectives to almost sometimes, as we've seen from this government, right-wing you know, tones, uh, and, and that's been sort of pointedly demonstrated by you know, the, the, the attack on one of the immigration centres in Dover, uh, is indicative of how diversity may not necessarily deliver equality of outcomes and impact, and it'll be useful for us to sort of try and, try and look at that. This research is a sobering testament to the persistence and prevalence of this issue, and I think it's high time that you know, all organisations uh, take a step change action in this. Now, we shouldn't be waiting for the government to do anything around this because it's not government that usually leads around agendas like that. Black Lives Matter movement didn't happen because of George Floyd's death. It happened before him. And there's been a history of sort of, you know, uh, anti-racist movements both in the UK and the US. It was just a symbolic element. Uh, um, um, hashtag MeToo movement didn't happen because of Harvey Weinstein and people like that. It's been, it's been there in the background all the time. So the movements of of change does not necessarily have to be initiated and led by government, it can happen from organisations. And interestingly, a lot of businesses, corporates have taken a lead in this area. So there's, there's, there's examples of best practice and good practice that we can unpack and explore as part of all of this. And finally, I'd just like to sort of say that, um, you know, uh, 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 what, what, what we need to sort of try and ensure is to look at ways in which collaboration can take place between institutions, between organisations, because it's the same old thing, you know, that happened with, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is that people coming together. We need to get organisations coming together to try challenge this issue. It can't be allowed to sort of continue. Great. Thank you very much indeed. In fact, that was sobering, but important. Now, Charlotte, you're obviously dealing with these cases day in, day out. Yes, that's right. Tell us a bit about it. So thank you for this report. Uh, it was very interesting. And one of the things as a practitioner, so I represent claimants only um, in employment and discrimination matters in the workplace. I work for Hammersmith and Fulham Law Centre. And for those who don't know about law centres, they are organisations that help those who can't afford or otherwise access legal advice. Now, at the moment, there is woefully dismal provisions for legal aid, which means we're partly grant funded and we cannot help everyone in our community. There is a real dearth of employment law advice which is unhelpful for both claimants and organisations who then are dealing with litigants in person who don't know the law and it gets very messy and it wastes a lot of people's time and justice is not served. So as a practitioner in this area, what I was most surprised about was the amount of people who are self-reporting that age discrimination was very prevalent because that's not what I'm seeing coming through my door. It's mainly race, sex and disability discrimination. And that's actually, as the report takes you through from people self-reporting, takes you through people who are going to ACAS early conciliation and then the employment tribunal themselves. So just to give you a bit of background on ACAS early conciliation, that's a process that's mandatory before you bring a claim in the employment tribunal and it's up to six weeks. You have to engage in it, although you can simply say that you've engaged get the certificate and move on, but ideally you engage with it properly and ACAS mediates between the employee and the employer for up to six weeks prior to bringing a claim. So there is potential there, not always, it doesn't always work, um, there's not always great engagement, but there's the opportunity there. So we're seeing 
people not going for age discrimination claims in ACAS early conciliation and then even less in the employment tribunal. So I think that's really interesting and something worth looking into there. Um, now, what I also found really interesting about the report was that looked at the industry type and the anxiety about discrimination. Because anxiety about discrimination is not necessarily the same as an actionable claim or what's coming through, but it is very indicative of what people are going through, especially when we know people don't have access to legal advice and often aren't able to go through the employment tribunal. Um, and I thought what's really, really interesting about this or, or important to remember is that discrimination isn't just an initial thing that happens to you and you have the initial harm of having the discrimination, having the hurt, having the detriment to mental health. It's not just that. It's the effect of you are in precarious employment or a zero-hour contract worker and your shifts get cut and you're pushed that much closer to financial crisis. That's a reality for low-paid workers. Or, for example, you're reliant on tips for a huge portion of your wages and you're less likely to get it because of a protected characteristic. Those are the reality, the real things that make a big difference to people's lives. And I think that's what we're seeing with the anxiety there. It's the real reality of what discrimination is. Now, moving on to enforcement. Um, now, I don't interact that much with the EHRC. I'm much more in the employment tribunal sphere. But I absolutely do believe that the EHRC needs teeth. It needs to be able to do something. You get good organisations, such as I'm sure the CIPD works with, who want to make change. They want to show best practice. And then a lot of the organisations that I have employees of coming through my door are not these good organisations. They don't want to engage. They want to cut costs. They want to be as cheap as possible. And they ride roughshod over employment rights. So I think the EHRC would do very well to continue their engagement with organisations, but actually have some enforcement powers, actually be able to report where there's been breaches on things like the national minimum wage or there's other breaches. So it can really encourage people and have that carrot and stick mentality um, because we need a lot more stick, in my opinion. So the good organisations can continue doing their good work, continue working for best practice, be corrected if need be, but then the poor organisations who aren't doing that can be knocked into shape and hopefully be deterred. Um, and I know the EHRC often replies, uh, relies on, on reputation. You know, they, they want to engage with the companies who care about their reputation. Well, those companies who care about their reputation are probably more likely to be doing the right thing. Other organisations don't care. You get companies who have about 10 different legal companies, same directors, they shut themselves down, the employees don't know who they're working for half the time or their employment shifts and all in a way to move away and to escape employment law rights. So we need to be aware not all companies care what other people think about them. Now I said that I work in the employment tribunal so I'm, I'm an employment law solicitor and um, that's the sphere that I work in, that's my jurisdiction. And the tribunal system is quite different than other court systems. The tribunals, the idea is that people can go and represent themselves. Now, this is complete rubbish, to be perfectly honest with you. Employment law, especially discrimination law, is very, very difficult to navigate, and there is barely any legal aid. There is some legal aid available for discrimination cases, but I believe there's only about 20 providers in the entire country, in, in England and Wales, who have a discrimination law contract. Uh, it's not lucrative, and we're not talking about lawyers who want to take home vast amounts of money. It's actually to keep a business running. 
So we don't have many advisors. We have some charities like law centres, um, and they're really the only organisations that are helping people who can't afford a lawyer. And because they're quite complex claims, lawyers are quite expensive just because the sheer amount of work that's needed for these claims. Now, um, as many people might know, there was a time where employment tribunal fees were brought in, I believe it was in 2014, and then it got ruled that they were unconstitutional and got taken away. Now, we're still dealing with the uh, fallout from the employment fees getting brought in because there was a huge drop, a cliff edge drop, in the amount of people who were bringing claims because they simply couldn't afford to. This meant that the employment tribunals shrunk in terms of capacity and uh, their staff which means that when people were able to bring claims again, a huge backlog started building up. Now, this isn't all bad news because we have seen an improvement. The employment tribunals are working very hard. There's been recently large recruitment drives for judges because you need judges <laughs> to get the cases through. We need good admin staff to get the cases through. Um, with the rise in virtual working, there's actually been a new virtual region. Now, the employment tribunal has different regions. For example, you've got London, you've got the South. And there's a new one which is virtual, so judges can pick up cases and move them along a bit faster. The rest of the country has seen improvements in the backlog. Unfortunately, London in the south of the country of England, we've got the slowest uh, moving backlog because it's just the busiest. So um, it's not always financially viable for people to bring cases. And in discrimination cases, I think this is detrimental to both companies and employees because People don't know what their rights are, they don't know if they've got an actionable claim, they don't get that early legal advice that would let them really focus on, on the issues. And also having a solicitor who will say, well, what do you want to achieve? And for many people, say for example, they've been a victim of disability discrimination, they don't want to lose their job, they don't want there to be a complete breakdown of the employment relationship. The ideal goal is that they continue working in the workplace with the suitable reasonable adjustments, and good relations with their employers and we don't have someone out of work the company doesn't lose an employee they've got a valued employee who is still staying there less staff turnover and we can sort things out quickly but without legal advice that's not happening so much so i think it's it's very important that we bear in mind the legal sphere that we're working in. We can't just work with the goodwill of good companies who want to follow best employment practice because they're probably doing the right thing. We need to remember that not everyone is doing the right thing and the people who are most vulnerable to change are those in industries where they're on zero hour contracts, they're low paid, they're relying on shift work and they're often in organisations that are outsourced as well. So you've got this real uh, avoidance of responsibility by organisations. I think we need to bear that in mind. And going back to the EHRC, they need to bear that in mind that it's very nice working with large companies who want to do the right thing, but they're not, they're not the problem. They're the leaders in best practice. We need to change our focus. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Charlotte. That was brilliant. Um, there's lots of uh, important lessons there and some good insights into the work you're doing day to day. So thank you very much indeed for that. Now, as I say, loads of great questions. Keep them coming in on Slido. I thought we would cover this in three sections broadly. The, um, what's actually happening in terms of quantity and the nature of discrimination, what we can learn from that. What's, the, what's going on in the current enforcement world, which you've just given us some great insights into, but we can pick up on some of those. And then what should we actually do? What does better look like? The, um, uh, so let's try to fit all of those in. I think we've got just about enough time um, to do that. So Hannah, why don't you 
take off. First of all, because there's a few people asking, um, if you have it up on the screen here, but is discrimination more prevalent in certain industries and sectors, which we didn't get into in the presentation much, but just give us insight. Where, where are the problems, basically? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, when it comes to industry, the best measure that we have is this kind of anxiety about discrimination measure rather than kind of self-reported um, measures that we had in, our, in different surveys. But basically, I think the, the pay gradient that I showed um, um, on one of the slides uh, in my presentation is kind of is very clear and kind of maps on very similarly to industry. So it's low-paid workers who are most likely to report anxiety about discrimination, and that maps quite clearly onto lots of lower-paying sectors, and particularly those that are more customer-facing. So retail, hospitality, um, those are the top two sectors um, where people are likely to report anxiety about discrimination. Whereas in higher-paying and, and kind of more slightly more. Uh, behind the scenes, as it were, it's not quite the right word, but, but uh, other sectors of workers are less likely to report discrimination. So I think there's kind of a clear, yeah, there's a clear clear pattern there. And also when, when it comes to occupation, those that are kind of require fewer formal qualifications, for example, um, are also more likely to report anxiety about discrimination. There's obviously a question there about where the discrimination is coming from. It may be employers, it may be um, kind of, you know, customers or, or other kind of people in the workplace, but it's kind of, yeah very clear lower paying sectors so I think that chimes with a lot of what you were saying Charlotte. But what's, what are your top sectors that you like that you see repeated cases coming in from? Any work that's outsourced so security guards that's very high people working in the hospitality sector that's very high too um, it's any aspect where you've got some aspect of precarious work so for example the hospitality sector doesn't surprise me at all we have people who are working on zero hour contracts where they get given a job to go to a certain event and then they don't have a guarantee of another one. Um, what's important there is the aspect as well of customer facing. And I just want to mention that in the Equality Act, you cannot, a company is not liable if a customer harasses a employee. So for example, Tolson and I work together, he's my manager, discriminates against me, well I can bring him against the company. But if Hannah's a customer who comes in and verbally abuses me, as I've had clients um, have happened with customers, um, the company is not directly liable, which means that there's a lot of unpleasantness in instances where you've got hospitality and outsourced organisations. Now, crucially, with outsourcing, you could have an office building. For example, let's say a, a solicitor's firm in London has a large office building. You've not only got the employees of the companies, you've got the security guards who work for a different company. You might have the concierge who works for a different company. You've got the cleaning staff who works for a different company. There's a real lack of responsibility here. And this is a, a huge problem, I know, with sexual harassment in the workplace because someone's sexually harassed by someone who simply works in the same building, on the same premises, there's not much they can do, unfortunately, in law. So I'm not surprised with the industries that you found there. That's great. Uh, look, on, we were discussing a bit earlier, but on public sector versus private sector, so you know, most of our discussion so far has been on the private sector. Most of the low earners in the economy are in the private sector. But you, we were discussing earlier, you know, there's some yeah. areas of the private public sector where you do see this discussion being needed? Yeah, we shouldn't sort of uh, elevate the public sector uh, and distinguish them from any other employer. Because they're humans. They're, you know, they're reflective of society and people working in society and, and you would find the same prevalence of discrimination and certainly from my lived experience of working with the, MMA, the police services, NHS, prison services across between them is yeah. the biggest employers in Europe. Uh, you know, 1.6 million people working in the NHS. And if you look at some of the data that they've published, and I'm not going to sort of uh, uh, give you specific stats here just in case I get it wrong, but the prevalence of discrimination in the NHS 
given that 40 to 44% of the workforce is from black and ethnic minority background, in some trusts there are 60 to 65% women working in these trusts. Yet, if you look at the sort of discrimination uh, cases internally being dealt with, and they've not necessarily gone to tribunal, uh, is, is, is significant. It's disproportionately higher for ethnic minorities than women in those organisations. And this is the public sector. Now, let's not even go to the police. We know exactly what's going on with the police. You know, we've had a female commissioner who led it, and yet sexism and misogyny was rife in that organisation. You know, it's been put under special measures. You know, so the public sector, whether it's those institutions that I've just referred to, or the central government institutions, which is even more important to sort of look at, because these are the people that are designing policy, advising ministers, and so on and so forth. That's you know also very much reflective of your findings if you were to sort of examine that in, in, in greater detail. So it's 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 an endemic problem. It's systemic. It's structural. And I was disappointed by the uh, ethnic disparities report, for example. Um, you know, on the rege- on, uh, yes, absolutely reducing the importance of structural and systemic discrimination that's apparent. If these reports don't prove anything otherwise, I don't know what does. Okay, very good. Now on, let's, let's, let's just touch on the balance between the different kinds of discrimination that are coming up in the survey, and then I'm going to come on to the overlap between them. So on, I mean, in terms of what the data, I mean, it's very important to remember that in the survey, we're asking people to self-report where they've experienced discrimination. We're not saying, it's not a legal definition of discrimination. It's kind of it's, it's their own um, how they interpret that word, and obviously that's why we're asking about anxiety and other things because lots of things will feel like discrimination and won't be provide grounds to bring a successful um, case. But on the balance between what you're seeing in the survey and then what you either experience in lives or see in work, I mean, so I'll, I'll go through what I found surprising. So. Um, Sex discrimination was less prevalent than I was expecting on balance. And as you say, for some groups, you see more people, more men reporting. Mm. And you do actually see quite a lot of men reporting sex discrimination, actually, in the uh, survey. But I thought that, although the absolute numbers are obviously very high because half the population is um, female, but, you, but the prevalence rates are really, it's disability and ethnicity are the two things that stood out for me. And as you say, age, particularly amongst young people, is high, but isn't translating into people bringing... Okay, so it's the experience of discrimination, but not one that people are choosing to either take down a legal route or that are coming up in most policy discussions. What, what did you think, Charlotte? What, was your, what surprised you and what didn't surprise you? So as I said, age surprised me a lot. Uh, the, the next three, which was the, age, the, sorry, the sex, race and disability, didn't surprise me. Um, I must say, I, was, I thought disability would be at the top. I think that's the thing that I see the most. Yeah. And it's uh, often failure to make reasonable adjustments. So businesses needing to think what actually are the adjustments that we can make that an employee needs and there are instances where it's not reasonable to make those adjustments that's why the word reasonable is there um, but that's the thing that I'm seeing the most. And has that changed over time at all the balance between the kinds of cases you see? Um, or has it always been that's the top? I think that's absolutely always been the top from, from failure to make reasonable adjustments to uh, capability procedures to uh, remind people what that capability yes, procedure is. Yes, my apologies. Are. So, uh, essentially, a capability procedure is a HR procedure um, where someone is in, unable to do their job. Now, um, just a bit of background, I won't take through the law too much, Don't do that. but you, uh, you can be dismissed by a company. You can be dismissed, absolutely. But if you have over two years' service, you have certain protections from this dismissal. And one of those is that there needs to be a fair reason for dismissing you. It can't simply be 
not not liking your style. It, it, can, it has to be a reason, and one of those is capability. Because if you're not able to do your job, well, realistically, should you be in that position? That's a very that's quite a fair position to take. Now, some people who have disabilities have problems because the adjustments haven't been made for them. They're essentially being set up to fail. Sometimes not through any fault, but it's just not being thought through. And that's what happens quite a lot. So I'm actually surprised that wasn't more prevalent. One thing I would say about sex discrimination is there wasn't, uh, I know we were dealing with the idea of discrimination as a kind of a lay term as a whole. And I was going to take that to mean yeah. harassment too. So, yeah. you know, conduct in the workplace that creates a hostile environment. Um, sexual harassment is, is so prevalent. It really is. Um, I also volunteer for the charity Rights of Women who have an advice line which anyone can call in England and Wales. And just, you know, from every sector, from people who are very high paid, very high powered jobs to people who aren't, that is really high. And I, I'm surprised that wasn't reflected with the sex figures being higher, but maybe that's just what I'm seeing a lot. No, that's what well, it, it's important to have, like, you know, it, the nature of this, which is we don't have lots of good evidences. You need to triangulate a lot of, mm. you know, what you hear in the hard end of this is people actually bring complaints with what people are telling us in terms of their anxieties. Is that you look for anything surprising? Well, it was it was interesting and and you know welcome as well that you uh, made some analysis around intersectionality, yeah. around you know which is increasingly being recognised and talked about within yeah. within the work work sphere, and a very very important area that people uh, really while intellectually that you know discussions can take place they really don't know what to do about that. You know, how do you deal with multiple levels of discrimination? So one, let's bring up the question on that, because that's yeah. the next one I was going to come on to, which is here, which is basically, you know, what about multi-factor discrimination or intersectionality? Um, so just talk, let's just so, remind people what it is, first of all. So, so, so intersectionality is the idea where, you know, the intersections of your personal experiences, your characteristics, whether they're protected or otherwise, uh, you know, intersect where multiple levels of discrimination is prevalent upon you. So you could be a woman, a lesbian, uh, from a black and ethnic minority background with a disability. All, all of those four factors can contribute towards discrimination. Now, how do you enforce that? How do you take action? And I think what pre pre people invariably do is they focus on you know, the key. And, and we had this discussion earlier about, you know, uh, and, and you've pointed it out as to Torsten as well, about experience versus taking action and evidencing yep. it. You know, what is an actionable you know, uh, uh, discrimination claim? And that's far, far more difficult, you know, because there is no precedence, there's no there's no framework that lays out, well, you know, I, I've got a disability. I've got several types of disability hidden and invisible. You know, I'm black and ethnic minority. You don't know what my sexual uh, uh, identification is. And so on. So all of those, you know, you've got your hidden elements, you've got your visible elements, but there is no provision, there is no uh, guidance, there's no explanation as to what employers and also what the rights of people are in terms of what they should do when those multiple levels of discriminatory experiences are apparent. And what people then end up focusing on is, and sometimes inappropriately, well, actually, I'm from a black and ethnic minority, so I'll, do a, I'll put in a race discrimination claim. And it's probably not the strongest one they want to pursue. And okay. that's where conversations, discussions, and further guidance is absolutely necessary. More research to underpin how that, how that can be taken forward. And did the res what did the research show in terms of people reporting more than one kind of discrimination they'd experienced? Yeah, I think um, I definitely encourage people to look at the full reports. We've got a, um, a really striking chart um, on this showing that people from ethnic minority backgrounds um, are basically more susceptible to pretty much every form of discrimination. Um, you know, it's not just 
um, it's not just race yeah, discrimination, they're more susceptible to sex discrimination, more susceptible to disability discrimination um, than, than white workers. And likewise, there's, there's a similar difference for workers with disabilities compared to those without. Workers with disabilities are more likely to report discrimination based on you know, several other protected characteristics, not just disability. So yeah. I think it's, you know, it's clear that intersectionality is a really important part of this. Mm. I mean, the law has been drafted to allow claimants to pursue dual protected characteristics, yet it hasn't been enacted. So essentially it's just sitting there ready to go and it's not been brought in, which means people can't bring claims for two things. And it's really, really important when you think about certain characteristics. So for example, older women will face may face discrimination because they are older women, not because they're older, not because they're women, but because it's a combination of the two. So it's very frustrating that we can't do that. And what, what happens in practice in that case? How, how, does the, how has, how has the, the law basically evolved to deal with this? You, you would have to bring a claim for age discrimination and a claim for sex discrimination, um, which obviously means tying it together is quite tricky. You might have to choose between one of the two to pursue. Uh, it's not. It's not adequate. Um, and I know. And I'm. I cannot remember her name, so apologies, sir. But there was a very high-profile presenter from the BBC who brought yeah. the claim, yeah. and that was because she was. An, she was said, "I'm an older woman, and older women are being discriminated against." The BBC, yeah. but she couldn't bring a claim for being an older woman. She had to break it down. Um, and it was missing the point. And I think as we, we do talk a lot about more intersectionality now, in the last you know, five yeah. years, the conversation has really grown and people are really starting to understand it more. Um, but the law doesn't yet reflect that. Very good. OK, let's, let's move on to just go into some of what's actually happening in, the, um, in, the, in people in the current enforcement system before we start improving things. Okay, so what's currently um, going on? So a few people are asking questions about the existing role of let's come on in a future to the future role of trade unions but the existing role of trade unions how that works in terms of obviously in the place in the sectors that have higher unionization so here's one example which is are our trade unions the elephant in the room rather than in the current system lots of people in practice are getting either support in terms of internal company procedures oh. From their trade union or then support in bringing things to a taking the case further if that's what they w wish to do through ICAS or through the tribunal system so uh, what's what's your experience it is what's the the role where you see unions standing out and how different is it across sectors i think it's a very vital and critical role that the unions play but before i come to that yeah. that that issue uh, I, I you know my gripe as it is with most organisations, as the trade unions is an organisation, it's an institution, and they suffer from the same kinds of discrimination internally yeah. as, as the stuff that they're trying to you know, defend and support. That said, yeah. you know, changes... In, in what they're doing in other organisations. <laughs> yeah. That said, you know, the role that they play is one that's vital, of course, you know, depending on what the union is. So, you know, you know, relating to the earlier point, some are much more aligned and understanding of you know, what they need to do, what their roles and responsibilities are, and understanding of, of, of you know legal provisions that, that, that that's there. Um, my experience of you know you know trade unions has both been positive and negative, where they've been unable to sort of you know take forward particular uh, claims and support. Much more importantly is what kind of advice and guidance that they do offer within the workplace setting where someone is is is, is a trade union member, whether it's the midwifery council you know within mm -hmm. relating to the NHS yep. setting or whether it's you know uh, unison you know for, for for sort of local government sort of employees and so on, you know again it's all dependent on your local representatives, your local stewards, your local uh, you know uh, uh, experts and advisors that are there, 
and it is very much one that's sporadic. You know, one couldn't sort of, and again, you know, it's the death of evidence and information as to the effectiveness of trade union representation and support. Uh, I think, uh, you know, where there, there is a tra unionized environment, people do rely on trade unions to sort of provide, you know, the first base of contact. And then they're not, at least they're not totally on their own, basically, and, and, which and, is the and, hard part. Absolutely, and, and, and then it goes from there. And I've seen, you know, good practice and bad practice in that area. That said, where there's been effective practice, trade unions have been, you know, fantastic in t taking all the way through to sort of tribunal and, you know, often, you know, providing the evidence base that, you know, people, especially if you're looking at those workers uh, who don't necessarily have the skill sets to, to, to take things forward, that's where trade unions come into their own. What do you think, Charlotte? I agree. I think trade unions have a tremendous ability to be able to negotiate, uh, to talk, to open these conversations and to have an eye on the big picture because an issue with approaching discrimination case by case is that you're only looking at a very specific set of facts and the trade union has the power to look at the whole thing and work out what the systemic problems are. Um, with regards to the question with yep. carers and outsourced work, I mean, that's a really big problem because if trade unions' main strength is their power to look at a big picture and have a whole group of employees, having lots of workers in outsourced positions for lots of different companies makes their job much harder. And there are some smaller trade unions which are focusing specifically on these workers. Um, but I think that's a challenge. I think that's a real challenge for trade unions um, and it's something they are needing to adapt to at the moment. Very good. And we're going to come back in a second to what could you what could change in the trade union uh, landscape. Let's So let's do, um, maybe we've got this question here on in backlogs in the employment tribunal system. As I, there have been phases over the last decade where we did get some discussion of the employment tribunal system, which was basically fees made it, the introduction of fees put it into politics for a bit. And then now and again, the, the nightmare that's been the backlog has basically made it into the news. But that's basically been it over the last decade. Now, you, know, you sounded a bit perky, Charlotte, in terms of progress. Like, the things are improving in brackets, just not in London and the South. I mean, I think it's just the situation is so bad that at the moment I'm taking what I can get. It's not... Okay, so it's, low bar, low expectations the, is the... <laughs> the bar is very low. Um, we need more judges. They're being recruited. But there was a loss of, you know, fantastic admin staff. These cases are complex. There's a lot of paperwork. It needs to be processed. Um, and, you know, without enforcement of a law, what is the point of it? You can't access justice if you can't get a speedy remedy. Um, and especially with discrimination, where you've got cases have such a huge toll on someone's mental and physical health. And then you've got this breakdown of the employment relationship, which is detrimental to both the employee and the employer. Having a discrimination claim that stretches out for 24 months is not helping anyone. You've got people on long-term sickness absence. Um, it's just not helpful to anyone. Um, and I noticed the report, the um, employment tribunal statistics saying that a case takes on average a year. What you've got to remember is I think that, that's going to take into account things like unpaid wages claims, which take an hour or two hours sometimes, as opposed to a 10-day discrimination hearing. So it's going to be for discrimination hearings. It's going to be a lot, lot longer. Um, so it, they're working towards getting it better, but there needs to be um, there needs to be infrastructure, there needs to be investment in infrastructure and the importance of the employment tribunals needs to be recognised because what's the use in saying we've got, you know, we're working on our economy if all these people aren't being paid their wages? That's not helping anyone. What, in terms of um, attrition rates once a case has started, how often do you see people just giving up halfway through because it's going up, it takes so long and they can't? 
Now, cases settle. They often do settle, and a part of that is that people think... Particularly on discrimination cases, more than most employment tribunal cases? I would say... I, th it was, I think the report said that it was um, unpaid wages were the ones that didn't settle most often. Was that the... Um, so I think it found that um, discrimination... I don't think we looked at other kind of forms specifically, but I think on, on average, most forms of discrimination um, cases settle slightly more often yeah. um, than, than the average. Um, and actually, when we kind of dig into the data on why, it's often because of, of the stress of the case from the claimant's point of view. Um, yes. That it's just, you know, they don't want to go through it. And, it. and again, that's kind of much more often the case for discrimination cases compared to other cases. And that's not always a bad thing because people, you know, people should hopefully be able to make informed decisions with good legal advice, which is lacking, but then they can, they can weigh things up like the financial settlement, whether they want to move on, whether they want to take the litigation risk. And this, this goes for employers as well. Um, settlement is not a bad thing. Um, it's just, we just don't know how many people are just finding it so stressful to have to produce a bundle of documents, to have to write witness statements, to do things that are very specialised jobs, but do it themselves, potentially still working for an employer, so you've got that relationship breaking down. It's a very, very unpleasant process. I, th I think, you know, from my sort of experience of claimants is that most people fear going through the litigation process, not, not just simply because of the onerous nature of it, but the consequences on their career. Yeah. That's why they don't pursue it. And their because, lives. And their lives, because you know, especially if you're, if you're you know, someone who's looking to sort of progress in a particular industry and so on, you'd think that if I become a, 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 you know, a litigant, well, everybody's going to know about this and that's it, my future's gone. And that's yeah. been the sort of overriding you know, concern that people have had as to why they don't pursue litigation. Yeah. I know, I mean, you know, sorry to use the police again, Every single senior police officer that I've known has taken litigation against uh, the Met Police. And these are senior, right from assistant commissioner level. That's, you know, that's in testament. Now, these are every single person that I've known, and whether that's representative of, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, the, 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 the female and, and, and ethnic yeah. minority police communities is quite different. But, you'd, you know, this, this is indication of you know, how they've internally sought to sort of resolve it, and, and more often than not, it's been resolved. Few of the high-profile ones have hit headlines, yeah. as we've seen, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. People are under-reporting, people are tolerating, people are conforming, people are, you know, all this idea of about bring your authentic selves to work, oh gosh, you know, it's just pure, you know, BS, yeah. you know, as far as I'm concerned, but, you know, morning. very early, so, you know, <laughs> Cut that okay. Out. <laughs> okay, great. Um, Hannah, do you want to come in on that on terms of what you can see in terms of, so you t touched on what the data shows in terms of length of time and but on terms of actual winning cases at the end? Yeah, so I think um, in, in the, again, in the full report, which I'd encourage people to, to read, we, we show kind of the success rates of different forms of discrimination claim compared to uh, the average, and we find that for every form of discrimination that we're able to look at, um, cases are less likely to be successful than the kind of employment tribunal average. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we can kind of speculate why that is. I suspect lots of it does have to do with the complexity of, of claims and also the, the kind of the fact that people are having to, to represent themselves against an employer who has discriminated against them, harassed them or whatever. And it, you know, you can't even imagine how you know, emotionally tough that must be, you know, it must be, must be horrible and it's not surprising that people without the kind of 
background without the, the legal support from other sources um, are not able to navigate that system and um, and kind of prove um, prove their cases. But I Shall, how, are you, how are you rationing? How are you, given that you have limited resources, mm -hmm. there's more people with bringing cases, well, there's more people with bringing issues that are able to take it to tribunal because of the limited support. Yes, I mean, the advice sector is completely overwhelmed. Uh, we rely for employment law mainly on grants, which some grant funders are fantastic, but they can't fund what should be funded by a proper, strong legal aid system. So we, we can't help everyone. That's the sad reality. And how do you decide what goes so, forward and what you have to say, look, we just can't help, I'm sorry. So my mantra is need, not demand. So assessing how much does someone need this. Now, you can take into lots of accounts things, someone's vulnerability, someone's ability to pursue it. If someone's a professional who's quite articulate, they're going to be more able to, just, to pursue a complex discrimination claim, although it would still be very challenging, um, than someone who isn't articulate, say, low literacy rates. Um, someone because they won't be able, well, because they will struggle to provide the evidence that will convince them. Yes, yes, as just struggling to provide the judge with the information that they'll need for the judge to be able to pick through. And ju employment judges do a great job because they have to sometimes just read essentially a stream of consciousness or a load of facts and try and pull out the law from it. Um, so, so it's it's very hard, um, and we we help those who can't otherwise access or afford. So if you come to me and you're paid £100,000 a year, I don't care how good your case is, I'm afraid you're going to have to pay to see a solicitor because there are some very good employment solicitors out there. Um, we focus on those who cannot afford it, but we have to turn people away. I can't take on everyone's cases, so actually you end up giving some advice and setting them on their way and hoping that that will make a difference. And, and self-representation, how much do people actually go ahead with that? A lot. A lot. It's very, very common. Um, and you think even well, for discrimination cases, absolutely. And you think you know, an employment tribunal is slightly more informal to make people feel more comfortable. However, it's still a court hearing, mm. and it includes things such as cross-examining witnesses. I mean, I think most people find that most solicitors and barristers will find that a challenging part of the job, let alone someone who has no idea how the legal system works. So, you're in, you're empl so that, would, that means your employer's solicitor can ask you questions? Well, and also, you are the claimant and you, you have someone who uh, you're saying discriminated against you, for example, and is there in the court and you're entitled to ask them questions on their witness statement. Well, that's incredible. You know, you, you never have any other jurisdiction where you have someone having to question their, the, their own perpetrator um, and not having legal support. The, um Right, on firms' reputation, how much have we got a few questions here basically around, I won't bring them all up, but basically how much do firms care, how much should they care, how much people, so sometimes if we had a, sometimes firms will say, look, I just settled because I don't want the reputational damage of this thing carrying on, mm. but they don't accept responsibility and they, mm. what's, what's your, how do firms see the issue? I think from an employer's perspective, if they're a responsible employer, with any sense of sort of ethical moral grounding, you know, they first and foremost consider that it shouldn't necessarily be a sort of business output decision that is going to look bad for us. Of course, ultimately, that is the sort of uh, concern. But from an ethical point of view, if you look at the current sort of state of employment out there at the moment, there's a war for talent. People are now deliberately choosing who to work for and not to work for. People are choosing whether it's an ethical employer, whether it's an inclusive 
employer that's going to treat them with respect, dignity, that they've got career opportunities and so on. So those are decisions. It's as equally as important, research has shown, as pay. So, you know, people will vote with their feet whether they're working in an existing organisation or so whether they're looking for a new employer, whether that employer is one that's got a history of discrimination and whether even if it settles, yeah. you know, it's a concern because is it settling because it doesn't want the bad reputation because that in itself becomes an issue. So the same kinds of tests and parameters that employees apply about their future of not taking litigation, employers need to be also concerned as to what kind of you know, brand image that they're portraying out there as a consequence of their equality, diversity, inclusion practices or not. So some of our research has shown from the CIPD that you know, less than 50%, 47% of employers uh, have some kind of EDI strategy. That's 53% that don't. You know, that's after decades, about 60 years, 55 years of anti-discrimination law. Some employers don't even have a, a policy and a strategy in place, which is indicative again of some of the research results that you've provided today, which is, which is an absolute catastrophe given that we're in the 21st century. You know, given that there's so much talk about, we've got nine protected characteristics for God's sake. 40 years back, there was only two or three, right? So, and then, of course, we now talk about personal experience and other attributes and other areas of equalities issues that are, that are coming into this. The sophistication of the equality space is, you know, significant. However, in, in the way that people are practicing and what people are doing in organization hasn't caught up with social discourse in this space. What are the top things that firms ask, come to ask the CIPD about in this space? What are they mainly... What are the like things that they so, would help so, with? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, strategy and action, you know, where do we start? Yeah. You know, what's the space uh, in this? And, you know, ours is one that's always evidence-led. What does your organisation need? What are your priorities? What kind of data points do you have in terms of, you know, not just workforce representation, but also about what do people feel about working in your organisation? What do your survey results suggest? That element of data is crucial in terms of not just about you know, the, the, the overriding data points about, you know, we've got X percentage of different groups of staff, but what did those staff think and feel in your organisation working there? And that's such a significant, uh, uh, you know, rich information source that will provide what that cultural attribute is within the organisation, whether the values of the organisation are being uh, 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 perpetuated in a way that's creating a sense of belonging, creating equality of outcomes for staff, um, and that needs to be tested regularly. So, so the journey of equality, diversity, inclusion in an organisation isn't just, you know, uh, we've had a couple of initiatives to attract more people into the organisation and have removed some of the biases. It is one that's continuous, and you may never achieve, you know, you know your end goal, but you have to be on that journey and continually have checks and balances on yourself. Right, let's move on to making the world a better place. But before we do that, we're going to do our first, well, our only poll, which now, the, um, uh, up on the screen here. So this is obviously not how the actual world works, because you would probably do all these things to some degree, or you at least consider doing all these things. But just to get a flavour of what you in the audience, how you if, you, if you experience discrimination, you may or may not have done in your world of work so far, although as the survey's showing more than you might think may have experienced some form of discrimination, what would be your kind of primary way of trying to, um, to deal with that problem? Is it to leave? your employer, which I'm sure is in practice what lots of people actually do, is they experience, have a bad experience and they exit the workforce or that particular employer, they have, even though that's obviously not what we would like. Resolve it internally by speaking, to, raising the issue 
the um, uh, have a trade union try and resolve it for you in a workplace where you have that experience. Get, go through ACAS, which we haven't actually touched on much in terms of the uh, thing, or go straight to a lawyer who will tell you to speak to ACAS first, um, and then come back to them. But what, what do you think most people will be thinking? Well, with trade union, it depends on whether you're a member. Mm -hmm. um, and what's quite important is trade unions do represent people on an individual basis. So collective action is only working when there's lots of people. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people don't have the luxury of being able to leave. And I know, sorry, I'm using the word a bit flippantly, luxury, because it's not nice to leave your job, but some people feel like they have to continue in a, in a workplace that's become extremely toxic. Yeah. Um, but I think ACAS is the one that people go to because people know they can telephone ACAS and they can get some advice. Now, the problem is that ACAS can't provide legal advice, but they can provide guidance. And I think they're the most common port of call yeah. and we need to recognise that and know that there's a thirst for knowledge out there. People want to know about their rights. So ACAS will talk them through hmm. what, they are, yes. what, what the law is but not what, how to take their case forward. Absolutely, absolutely. This is, this is slightly separate than the, the early conciliation process I yeah. spoke about earlier. This is that they have a helpline that people can call and this applies for both employees and employers and they can get some guidance and not legal advice but it's often very practical. What do you think of what do people do in practice? I mean, in practice, I think your first point of call is if you're aware of your HR um, yep. colleagues in the organisation. Uh, I mean, you know, immediately, I mean, if there's an issue and if, if you have a, a scope to raise it with your line managers, you should be raising it with your line managers because part of that sort of, if you do end up going to litigation, you have to show that you've been able to sort of exhaust all the internal processes uh, that are there, whether the capability procedures or discrimination procedures or whatever procedures, mm -hmm. HR procedures that are there. So those need to be looked at first. They're not always available if, if you're, a, you know, uh, the kinds of workers that we've been talking about earlier. Uh, so that's where, you know, citizens advice or, you know, ACAS or others will refer them back to say, contact so-and-so in your organisation to get the necessary information so that you can internally deal with these issues. So the first and most important thing is internally being able to deal with that. If the behaviour in the organisation, whether it's a line manager, colleague or someone else, is persistent, yep. that's when you should be sort of looking to sort of look at external ways in which to sort of try and resolve it. Resolution is the first and most important thing uh, for, for all parties concerned before one seeks to sort of take it, take it externally to litigation. Uh, and in terms of our role, in terms of CIPD, the way we support our HR community is very much through the provision of guidance, research. So we'll produce, you know, inclusion, diversity, uh, equalities guidance around recruitment selection, how to sort of, you know, ensure that, you know, organisations have effective procedures in place and, and, and uh, uh, practical support that they can offer staff. And depending on who, 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 who the perpetrator allegedly is yeah. around that you know, they can then direct, HR professionals can direct individuals to the appropriate support. Where it gets gets to a sort of adversarial situation where the employee is then, of course, the HR professionals then separate themselves out yeah. in terms of defending the so-called reputation of the organisation. The more astute and mature organisations will make sure that there are effective provisions for all sides concerned. Do you, how, how easy do you think uh, HR or bits of organisations in organisations big enough to have an HR department rather than just the boss. But um, how much do they, how how do they deal with that dual role of defending the organisation in the in the ultimate case where it becomes a legal case versus providing support to get to a reconciliation earlier? So there'll be a lot of organisations will now have even even sort of medium sized companies will have you know, employee resource groups of yep. sorts. 
so those can be extremely valuable sort of uh, business tools, uh, support tools for people, uh, especially self self help, uh, where individuals can can go. Um, usually, there would be if there is an officer dealing with uh, employment matters on behalf of the employer, there'll be another officer providing the necessary support. So those there'll be different so they officers. They try and separate those sort of arrangements. Okay, let's bring up the results of the poll and see what people thought on their, the on their own vote, which broadly may here you go. So we basically, well, unsurprisingly, speaking to employers, a good first port of call, uh, and then uh, using a trade union as a help either with that process or then moving on to a more formal process comes up high. This may reflect that we are probably, I'd say, a public sector heavy audience and trade union heavy audience but anyway but you get the general gist right let's move on to answers in our last few minutes because the um, hannah set out at the beginning some of our recommendations um uh for doing it what, what do you want to add to the list of things you'd like to see that we didn't cover charlotte i think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head with regards especially to the ehrc it needs an overhaul. It needs funding. Is it telling that we haven't actually discussed the HRC much so far? How much is the HRC actually? If someone's actually facing discrimination, what are the odds of them actually having any interaction with the HRC? I mean, I, I don't know a client who's come to me and said they've had any interaction at all. Do they know it exists? I don't think so. I mean, I've interacted with them professionally, and I've read about cases they've been involved that have got press, but I don't think it affects or will cross the mind of, a, of most individuals. Uh, it, it could do a great job. It could. And the single enforcement body, which is being proposed and built and hopefully will have lots of powers under it, hopefully can work with it and we can have them working together. But I do think it's telling. Yes, we haven't mentioned them because they're not, they're not coming across. Hannah, what do you want to mention about the HRC? <laughs> not, uh, covered it very much. I mean, I think, you know, to be fair to the HRC, I think they do do a lot of good work on the kind of compliance end of the spectrum, you know, telling businesses what, what they need to do. And there, there have been, as Charlotte said, high profile cases where EHRC investigations have been um, kind of very well publicised. And I think the EHRC sees that as, as kind of, again, thinking about reputation, kind of wanting yep. to deter businesses who might be thinking or, you know, not be following the rules themselves. But I think it's fair to say that the EHRC just does very little enforcement action you know in part that's because of their lack of powers in part that's because of their lack of resources they take a very kind of strategic approach to which cases they do take on it tends to be more about which cases might set a legal precedent or which you know affect you know large groups of workers um but in practice that means that they're just you know that the in the vast majority of cases, workers will be more likely to go through the employment tribunal system or one of the other um, one of the other routes that we've talked about. Let's, let's take a question in the room. Go ahead, sir. I think we'll just go ahead. I can hear you. I'll okay. repeat it for everyone. Uh, at home. Yeah, t uh, Tony Cox. Um, I don't disagree, obviously, with you promoting the HRC, but it does seem to me that one of the practical thing, uh, ways we could offer help uh, would be by, by promoting membership of trade unions. Uh, because, I mean, they've come up in a few of the questions, and it, it's not the case that you have to be in a uh, workforce that's uh, got collective um, membership. Yep. You can be an individual trade union member, and you can then go straight to the head office. And the points that were made about the, the um, ability of trade unions to collect data together, and then they can put pressure on other organisations like the HRC. But, I mean, I think hoping for res more resources for the HRC in the current climate 
is probably just what's going to happen, thinking. Tony. Exactly. <laughs> so great, okay. I, I think a practical solution would be to promote trade union. Very good. So let's combine that with a question from uh, Dr. Joyce Mahmoud here. If I can bring it up, which is basically just let's split and let's split. Let's take Tony's question with the first part of this question, which is: Should the Equalities Act? be updated to give a statutory right for trade union equality reps. At the moment, some firms support equality reps, some do not. They, um, and then let's separately come back to this question about the role of uh, non resolving cases without recourse to employment tribunals, an issue about whether that's the direction of travel we should be going in or not. The, um, so first of all, let's do, should we, ha should we have firms being required to support trade union equality reps, i.e. with time off work or time off their tasks to provide that? What do you think? Well, the straightforward answer is yes, absolutely. I think it's due, a, a review of the Equalities Act is due, and I think it's part of that uh, uh, um, uh, improvement. There's, there's lots of sort of uh, changes that have taken in society, lots of changes in terms of expectations, organisational demands and challenges. All of those need to be reflected in a modernised Equalities Act. Uh, I still like the way in which the uh, the Act is called the Equalities Act and not some kind of, you know, Diversity Act or whatever, because the notion of equalities is really what we're really That's concerned about here. Yeah. It's really yeah. important. And as part of that, yes, absolutely, you know, it needs to be sort of made mandatory. Uh, I mean, you know, as we talked earlier, there needs to be both carrot and sticks. We need to sort of ensure that there is effective legislation in place supported by effective enforcement, and that's where the EHRC comes in. It, as, you know, I referred to this earlier on in, 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 in a small reference in, in, my, in my presentation, which was that you don't set up a, a, you know, a watchdog body which is unable to sort of enforce things. It's absolutely uh, set up in a way which doesn't represent individual interests. It does sort of identify those particular cases that would, would, would have wider, wider uh, um, uh, effect on society. And it's, and it's right, and I think that's... that's the, but what it hasn't been able to do is pick up on those significant cases, whether it's Azim Rafiq or the MP, yeah. I forget her name, uh, from the Conservative Party, who brought, you know, who claimed to a boss, yeah. you know, I've been discriminated against on the basis of my faith. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do about it? And he says, well, actually, it's nothing to do with me, dear. Go and speak to the um, uh, um, um, whatever whip. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he didn't do anything about it. So here you have at the highest levels of government where it's not being practised. Okay. EHRC sees this, it doesn't pick it up. Absolutely, it's doing a great deal of good work. But when it comes to uh, public interest stories and issues of that nature, that's where they should have jumped in on it, as well as the Azim Rafiq situation. And it was just too far behind. You know, by the time it came round to make issuing statements and so on, yeah. it just didn't set, you know, present itself in a way which was representing the interests of the equalities community. Yeah. Now, um, Hannah, let's move on to the second half of this question, which is, what's the balance between resolving cases via a legal process, or by, I should say, a court-based legal process, versus um, other ways of coming to conclusions? So, as you pointed out in your presentation, some other parts of the enforcement system provide, basically, some, somebody is the enforcement body and is able to find an employer makes the finding of fact themselves, basically, without going... It can then go to an employment tribunal if it needs to, but it, the foot, there are bodies that can do that. So, and, and, and you sat, the report's a bit agonised on this, basically. So how much can we have other ways of getting to um, conclusions without recourse to a tribunal? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we... Yeah, as I said earlier, we, we're a bit more kind of leaning towards 
ways of redress that are not state-based enforcement in in this case more than others because it's kind of it's, cases are more complex and they need kind of people to kind of make make judgments and and you know support workers through um often a quite a long um process of, of of getting redress so one way of doing that obviously being through the employment tribunal system i do you know i think there's there's definitely an argument for for organizations like unions i mean so we did a piece of work a year or two ago now um, on health and safety um, in the workplace, and we found that um, kind of maybe yeah. this question that that one of the you know one of the main places where workers would go if they were facing a health and safety concern in their workplace was union reps. That yep. was a really important Absolutely. group for workers, and it's often one that they they know well and they trust, especially in the kind of early stages of of taking a claim forward. But um, but also kind of re researching other kind of parts of our work program has shown that unionisation is just dropped off a cliff over the last few decades you know workers have a little tick up the last few years very small, small tick very up, small but, doesn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't reverse the long term trend. Trend. um so i think it i think it's really important but we have to remember that the reality for lots of the workforce is just that collective action isn't really part of today's labor market so there needs to be i think having a wide range of options for people to go to and, and crucially making sure people know about the options that are available to them like acas like you know other, other places. last word to you charlotte on it, does the nature of the beast in discrimination cases, which is basically a finding of fact, mm. which is not as clear-cut as it might be, say, on minimum wage, underpayment, or a health and safety breach, mean that we basically are going to be relying on the legal system more than we might in other parts of the enforcement landscape? I think we need to rely on it because it needs to be there and it needs to be strong because people are not going to be people, companies are not going to want to settle claims if they know it could just continue on for a long time, they don't have to deal with it, they don't have to engage, what's the point? And obviously I'm not speaking about everyone, but the, the, the companies that I see come through my door sometimes don't want to address the issues until a claim has been issued. So they've actually been taken to the tribunal, they've had negotiations, they've, they've might have had a grievance, they've gone through a Casoli conciliation and still they haven't engaged. So unless we have a strong system, I think it's wishful thinking to think other things are going to work because they only work when you've got the threat of the alternative of being a good system at the end. So I don't think we can give up on that. And I think trade unions as well, we, we're talking about collective action in terms of negotiation, but actually they have a lot of power and they have legal teams. They, they speak to law yeah. firms, they get representation. If they don't have the power there to take someone through the employment tribunal, their power's been hugely fettered. Um, so to strengthen the trade unions as well, it's not just looking at the trade unions' direct rights, it's how much they can enforce things in the employment tribunal. Great. Look, I hope there's been, well, there's definitely been, from my perspective, a lot of learning this morning. So thank you all three of you for doing that. Let's give them a round of applause, everybody. Um, um, and, uh, thank you for lots of um, great questions. As I said at the beginning, this is definitely an area where it's really important not least because the scale, as we've shown you, is quite high, but the impact on people if they experience it is, is not just a mild irritation. It can be very, very serious indeed. And given that, it is slightly odd that we don't discuss it more often. So I hope, thank you for joining us for discussing it today. As I say, the uh, enforcement project here that Hannah is leading is rolling on into uh, its final report early in next year. So please do stay involved with that. And thanks again to Unbound Philanthropy for, for supporting it. Have a good day, everyone, and see you at Resolution Foundation event soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.